Welcome to Book Bistro, where book enthusiasts come to chat about the books they love in a warm and supportive environment. is airing on Tuesday, November 1st, 2022. Hello, everyone. It's Shannon back with you for another Tuesday morning episode. We are sharing an author interview today and, of course, some talk of this week's new releases. The interview I have for you is one that I did earlier this year, and it is with Stephanie Robel. She was on the podcast once before for her first book, Darling Rose Gold, and she came back to talk about her second book, which is entitled This Might Hurt. So let's get started with the housekeeping information, followed by the interview, and then I'll be back to chat with you about new books. You can find us on Facebook by searching for the Book Bistro podcast. Once there, you can post to our timeline. You can also message us privately. If you want a more social interaction, you can join our Facebook listener group, which is pretty quiet at the moment, though we are looking at some ways of possibly revamping it. If Facebook is not your thing and you still would like to hang out with us, check us out on our WhatsApp group. You can subscribe to that either by messaging us through Facebook or by sending us an email, and one of us will be happy to add you. If you're looking to get a hold of us via email, you can do that by contacting the Book Bistro Podcast at gmail.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Book Bistro podcast. This is Shannon, and today I am very, very happy to welcome Stephanie Robel back to the podcast. She was here for her debut, Darling Rose Gold, and now she's back to talk about her new book, This Might Hurt. It came out today, actually, we're recording on February 22nd, and it is out in the world. So Stephanie, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you for having me. It's great to be back. You're welcome. So can we start out with a brief introduction to this book so that listeners know what to expect? Sure. So This Might Hurt is about three women, uh, two of whom are sisters, Natalie and Kit Collins. And when the book starts, they haven't spoken in six months because Kit's been away at this self-improvement retreat called Wisewood. Uh, it's on a private island off the coast of Maine, and the rule there is, you know, no contact with uh, family and friends for the six months that you're there. But what really sets the ball rolling is Natalie gets an email from a Wisewood account that says, would you like to tell your sister what you did or should we? And so Natalie starts to panic uh, and then heads off to Wisewood to try to come clean to her sister before anyone else does and hopefully bring her back home. So I really liked um, Natalie's portions of the book, but the part that really like caught my attention, I think, first was that secret sort of third woman um, that we see 
that, you know, you're not necessarily sure right away how she relates to the rest of the story. But I found her chapters just to be like utterly riveting. And as it continued, you know, I could kind of like understand who she was and how she fit in. But until I figured it out, like her her voice was just so compelling. Oh, thank you. Yeah, she was actually my favorite to write. So I'm glad that that (laughs) that my enthusiasm came through. Yes, yes. This one is different in some key ways from Darling Rose Gold, um, but also has some kind of similar themes of like family and people, you know, kind of coming to terms with things in their pasts. I'm wondering, as you were as you were writing this one, did you kind of set out to kind of keep certain elements the same while exploring like different themes or is that just something that kind of happened as you as you wrote no it was definitely more of a coincidence it's funny I you know with the with Darling Rose Gold I didn't intend to write a family story and with This Might Hurt I didn't intend to write a family story either I think they're just sort of um outputs of the kind of story I wanted to tell, which in the first, you know, with my debut was a story about Munchausen by proxy, which is typically, you know, the, the, it's typically a mother child relationship there. And then with this might hurt. um, I knew I wanted to tell the two perspectives of cult leader and cult member, but then the third perspective of Natalie as the outsider came later. And, you know, as I was debating who this person should be, I wanted them to feel more obligated um, than let's say a friend, but less dedicated than a parent. So a sibling just seemed like the right uh, balance between those two. Well, and I think like with Natalie and Kit, you have such a complex relationship where they, you know, obviously care for one another, but there's a lot of like, unresolved stuff between them that makes it very tricky. Yeah, and I think that's true to any sibling relationship or any familial relationship, you know, hopefully not to the extent that is present between Natalie and Kit. But, you know, certainly there's tensions um, and all kinds of interesting conflict within families. I think it's it's fascinating that, you know, this is the only group of people really that for better or worse, you're sort of stuck with throughout your life, you know, And, and regardless of how you all change from the time you're children to adults. Um, you know, you're just kind of expected to grow together. You know, maybe marriage is another example, um, but certainly even marriage is not as long term as, you know, uh, your immediate familial relationship. So I think there's just inherent in that is all kinds of interesting conflict. So I also find like the whole idea of cults to be super fascinating, Um, obviously not in real life, like I don't necessarily want to go out and join one, <laughs> but I think that they are stellar to read about. And I'm wondering, as you were writing this, like, did you do research into cults and like what kind of draws people in and the kind of people who start them and all that like good, fascinating stuff? Yeah, exactly. I mean, research is one of my favorite parts of the novel writing process. I go very deep into it, probably deeper than need be. Sometimes it's <laughs> maybe an, ex- <laughs> an excuse for me to just, you know, go down the rabbit hole of my obsessions. Um, but for me, a lot of the really the majority of the research is um, from a more psychological perspective. So looking for commonalities between cult leaders in this case, and then as well as 
people who joined them um, and sort of having that base understanding of the personality traits or whatever that my own character should have before then, you know, flushing them out and making them my own in terms of, you know, ticks and quirks and all of that good stuff. So, so yeah, definitely studied quite a wide range of real life cults before I, before I created mine. So did you do this, um, like by reading books or did you do kind of like journal articles that have been written about cults over the years or kind of what, what form did your research take for this particular book? So a lot of nonfiction book reading, um, both yes. sort of from the bio, like sort of a biography standpoint, but then also some memoirs from cult survivors, um, as well as a couple podcasts and documentaries and things like that. So it was really quite a range. Um, but I think they all lend their own importance, you know, with a with a nonfiction book. Certainly you can do a much deeper dive, but it also really helped me to watch even just the mannerisms and sort of the traits, especially of leaders, um, to just try to understand how they are able to pull off what they pull off. Um, because actually, I thought that was in portraying a cult leader more difficult to me than the manipulations and things was to try to figure out how to portray the charisma, you know, um, as, as an introvert, I wouldn't say it's the most obvious thing to me, how you could manage to recruit and keep hundreds of people so loyal to you, even against their best interests. Um, so that was really the challenge with that character. I've always been really interested in that, just how it is that someone can persuade so many people to do things that, you know, to a lot of people just seem like outlandish or dangerous. And yet, you know, when you're kind of under the spell of someone who is so charismatic, it it just seems to to work in a, a very creepy way for people. Yeah. And, you know, what I learned from the research is it doesn't start out creepy um, I think the way that cults have typically been portrayed in art focuses more on the zany rituals and uniforms and haircuts and whatever else. And so from our perspective, it's like, well, how could anyone fall for this? But the reality is people don't sign up for cults. They sign up for religious organizations or social groups, um, and they're looking for just deeper meaning in their lives. And when you realize that, um, it becomes a lot easier to portray or get in the head of a member because you know, who among us hasn't been looking for some sort of change in life or, you know, a deeper purpose or whatever the case may be. So that was when things really clicked for me in portraying Kit. Um, because, yeah, you know, I, I went through a period in my mid 20s, certainly where I felt a little lost. And, you know, this was right before I, you know, actually switched to a career in writing novels. Um, but I think a lot of us go through it. And there are definitely times we feel lost and just sort of want to find an answer or maybe even you know, a completely different change in life, even if it's something as dramatic as a six month break with the rest of the world. Yeah. And I think we look, you know, to various, various places for that kind of meaning, you know, whether it's through like someone we meet on a college campus, or like you said, through a religious organization, or like a self-improvement group. I think there are so many places that we hope to find these things and, you know, on certain occasions, those things don't don't go as well as we may have hoped. Yeah. And that's the I think the interesting thing is, I mean, any anyone could 
you know, fall prey and not realize until it was too late, you know, if, if you're kind of unlucky enough to choose one of these groups. But again, it's so incremental, you know, when you first join, you're just meeting friends and like-minded people and you all have a similar goal and you feel really bonded. And then, you know, it's that bond that becomes very hard to break. And then not only from an emotional perspective in terms of eventually breaking out, is it difficult, but also a lot of times, you know, especially in, you know, a lot of cults from the seventies, your livelihood would be tied to the cult. You're getting free housing or food or whatever from the cult. So it's, it's not, you know, as it's not always even the case of just like, Oh, emotionally, I can't break free. Like a lot of times, you know, your entire ability to support yourself is tied up in this group. I read um, Sex Cult Nun by Faith Jones pretty recently. And one of the things that struck me about that was that her family, like this cult encompassed like so much of her family that by leaving, you know, she was cutting herself off from like the people in her life, um, you know, she was born into a cult and eventually did leave. But in doing so, you know, had to kind of sacrifice some of those relationships. Yeah. And that's what's so hard about leaving them, because they are really genuine relationships. You know, I think if we if we backed away from the cult for a second and just looked at maybe like toxic families, for example, you know, how many of us, you know, it, it get up and completely, you know, cut ties with our families. It's a, these are very personal relationships and that that's exactly what makes it hard to walk away. So as you were writing, this might hurt. Were there things that kind of carried over from your writing of Darling Rose Gold, like things that you've learned along the way, or was it just a completely new and fresh experience that you've had to approach kind of from that blank slate? Um, I would say, you know, certainly there's there is a level of confidence, at least that, you know, that you've done it once before so you could do it again. But um, I will say that writing the second book was much harder than the first. And I'm still not quite sure exactly why that is, um, how much of it was due to the technical challenge and that I, you know, had three point of view characters instead of two versus almost a more psychological challenge in that now I had people waiting for the book or whatever. Um, I had a deadline to write to things like that. But yeah, I definitely, I, I had heard about the notoriously difficult second book for authors and I thought, well, I'll just have a plan and, you know, I'll be fine, whatever. And, you know, seven drafts later, (laughs) okay, (laughs) I guess thing didn't go quite to plan, but you know, I got there in the end. So it's okay. Well, I guess plans, you know, only take us so far sometimes. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, even in terms of plotting my work ahead of time, I, I think it's almost I realize now that it's almost more of a security blanket because with both books, the original plan that I had, the book is very different in its finished iteration. Um, so I think I yeah, I've kind of accepted that things will change. But like it's it, for me, it's just not I'm not sitting at the blank page going, oh, what's what am I going to write today? What's supposed to come out? You know, it, it it's some sort of comfort to know, like, OK, the, here's some guidelines and like this is where things should head. So when you're plotting, do you do kind of like just like an overarching plot where you know kind of key points to the story? Or do you plot like chapter by chapter where you know, you know, almost every 
like every move that needs to be made? I start really macro and just, you know, I always, my beginnings rarely ever change, even, you know, even in the actual, at the actual sentence level. Um, so I always know those and try to come up with the, a loose middle and ending, but then I just keep getting more granular. So before I start writing a first draft, I will try to have at least a sentence summary um, for every chapter. Um, and like I said, you know, those things change. Sometimes I end up splitting chapters, combining whatever, or they'll, you know, just the, the plot will change altogether in future drafts. But um, for me, it's helpful to have sort of a indication of where things should go. So I'm not just kind of aimlessly floating around, you know, the characters are just kind of standing there with their hands in their pockets, not sure what they're supposed to be doing. When you write, do you think that your plot kind of comes first or do you see your characters before you see like your, your whole story idea? That is kind of dependent on the book. I mean, I, I always have a character, you know, at least like a character name and a loose outline of who they are, but Sometimes they don't, they're not as um, sharp, I guess, when I start plotting as other times. For example, like in my first book, Patty with Darling Rose Gold came to me completely fully formed. Like I just knew everything about her before I ever really started plotting. Um, whereas Rose Gold took, you know, a bit more time to define and form. And I would say that was the case with these characters and this might hurt. It took me quite a while to get them um, sharply defined. And so that part of the process, I, you can't really just force them to come to life. It's just through iteration after iteration. So in that case, you know, with this might hurt, there was, it was kind of in tandem where I was like plotting things and then also trying to think through the characters. But, but yeah, it was definitely a rude awakening when I kind of just expected or hoped them to float down to me. And instead it was much more, you know, molding the Play-Doh sort of feeling. So now that this might hurt is out in the world, what can readers look forward to coming next for you? So I am working on my third novel, um, which, <laughs> which is about an American woman who is living in a giant manor in the English countryside. Um, and she hasn't spoken to anyone for two years. She hasn't left her house in two years. We don't know why. Um, but very soon at the you know at the beginning of the book, um, an elderly British woman comes and knocks on her door, and that sort of sets the ball rolling. So yeah, ooh, reminds about- me a little bit of like gothic, like the old you know kind of crumbling manor in the countryside where it's kind of dark and dreary. <laughs> Yeah, it definitely, you know, I didn't intend to write that book, but in the the house itself is well cared for, but it definitely does have a gothic feel to it. You know, I think anytime you stick someone by themselves in an enormous house, there's like already just creepy vibes. Um, and I actually went and stayed in a giant manor by myself for a weekend. And I can tell you that your imagination runs very wild when you're all alone in such a huge place. I imagine that's true. And like, there are certain places that I feel like are so incredibly atmospheric, like places, you know, on like the English moors, like heading toward Cornwall. Mm. I feel like that would just sort of be like a creepy place versus like somewhere else that maybe is, I don't know, just somehow like less, like that atmosphere is, is less oppressive maybe. Yeah, that was, um, setting was a big focus on, for me on this might hurt versus, Darling Rose Gold, I really wanted to 
focus on it more. Um, and so that's why I ended up studying the book on an island, um, because I think, you know, especially if it's if the community is one that some people might want to escape, you know, the island is already a very sinister becomes a very sinister place. Um, and I thought right, you can't just leave. Yeah, exactly. You know, the water is 50 degrees. So you're in eight miles from the mainland. So you're certainly not swimming across the bay. Um, but yeah, I thought it was interesting to explore, you know, when Natalie gets to Wisewood, it's the dead of winter. But when Kit gets there, it's, you know, the middle of summer. So it's just interesting to think about how a place is perceived depending on the time of year and sort of what your relationship to the place is. Yes. Yes. Like, are you coming there with sort of preconceived notions in any way that affect how you perceive the setting? Yeah, exactly. Because obviously, like Natalie, as she goes there, you know, she's not really sure what she's going to find. And she has a lot of like emotional baggage that she's kind of carrying with her. And so this isn't like a happy, a happy place for her. No, she's really made her mind up about Wisewood before she's ever stepped foot on there. And I mean, the phone call that she has in the very first chapter of the book with Gordon, who's a staff member at Wisewood, certainly doesn't help because he has, no. you know, he has a very, uh, let's say unwelcoming vibe to him. But even before the call with Gordon, you know, she's, Natalie is a skeptic at heart and she has no idea why anyone would ever do, you know, a retreat. She's, she's not at all, uh, sympathetic to this cause. No. But when Kit is, you know, going there for the first time, like she's so hopeful about the ways that this can change, you know, change her life, change her just as a person. And so I think we see that, like we see Wisewood in a completely different way um, through her perceptions. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think Kit is an optimist and I would even go so far as to say a romantic at heart, whereas Natalie is a pragmatist, you know, so they just they already see the world very differently. And that's sort of illustrated by how differently they see the same island. You know, Kit goes yes. in, like you said, she She's very hopeful. She wants this to work out. Um, and you would assume that anybody going to a retreat like that would be hopeful because otherwise, why are they spending the money and, you know, devoting the time to do it? Right. Right. Like most people don't go, you know, unless they're really hoping to get something out of that. Yeah, exactly. And so she finds a lot of like minded people there to different degrees of commitment, certainly, you know, her initial friends, April and Georgina, feel more um, on her own speed or maybe even the the reader's own speed in terms of they want to improve their lives. But they're also they spend a lot of time talking about how much they miss their phones and families and things like that. And I think they are probably the most relatable people, uh, the most relatable guests at Wisewood versus, let's say, the staff who are much more committed and hardcore. Right. And they don't necessarily talk about, you know, things that like rub them the wrong way or things that, you know, they wish were different. Like they are so loyal to this cause that you don't, you don't get a lot. I don't get a sense that they're like wishing that things were different. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's really a reflection of how devoted they are to teacher who is the leader um, of Wisewood and, you know, yeah, how they, how committed they've become to that person. Um, so, so yeah, it's, it's interesting to look at. And, you know, again, going back to the research, like that's what I found to be true as well. There were certainly different levels of commitment within cults. You know, everybody was not die hard by any stretch. 
outside of stuff that you've read for research, um, what have you read recently that you think the world should know about? Um, I recently finished a memoir called Stray by Stephanie Dandler that absolutely blew me away. It came out, I think, a year or two ago. And it's a story about um, her parents, really. It's a story about their struggles with addiction and mental health issues. But it's also this love letter to California and the prose in it is just absolutely beautiful. I think yeah, I highlighted half the book um, and it was she just sweet, bitter. Yes, that's right. She that was her first novel. Um, and then after this wrote a memoir as her second book. And I really enjoyed Sweet Bitter as well. That's, you know, the sort of coming of age story in New York. Um, but the memoir just like really, you know, blew me away. So I've been recommending that to everybody that I talk to. That, I think, is sitting on my iPad with the other, you know, thousand books that I hope <laughs> to read in the in the relatively near future. Um, I saw it like when it first came out and I was like, oh, you know, this could be good. So I downloaded it. And then, of course, I got distracted by, you know, the millions of other things that come out um, on, on a weekly basis. Yeah, that's always the struggle, isn't it? It's like, you're like, I'm finally going to read this book that I've wanted to read forever. And then like seven other shiny objects catch your eye and you're like, ah. Oh. And for me, you know, I've spent so much of my reading time researching as well. So it's always this battle of, you know, the different book types that I'm trying to get to. Well, I feel like certain days there are like so many good things that are coming out, like your release day. Um there's like a ton of really great things that are coming out. So then I'm like, Oh, you know, so now all these are here. Like, which, which one should I read first? Yeah. Yep. It's the, it's the struggle of a reader. It's a good struggle to have, but yeah. I was just going to say it's, it's not a, a bad problem. Um, I, I can think of, you know, many, many worse things to uh, battle with over, you know, battle myself over. Yeah. Exactly. In the course of, of life. Yeah. So before I let you dash off to your next interview, can you let listeners know the best place to find you online? Sure. So my um, author website is stephanierobel.com. And then I am on Instagram at Stephanie Robel and then Twitter and Facebook as well. Um, my Twitter handle is Steph Robel and Facebook is Stephanie Robel books, I believe. <laughs> it's a lot of handles to remember. <laughs> it is, yes. Are they all just like nicely linked um, on your website? Yes, that's right. You can find everything on my website. Perfect. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining me again today to talk about This Might Hurt and to give listeners a little bit of insight into that writing process. Thank you so much for having me again, Shannon. It was really fun. You are so welcome. And once again, this has been a discussion of This Might Hurt by Stephanie Robel, which was released in the U.S. on February 22nd. All right. New books. This is a fantastic release week. I have quite a few things to tell you about. So let's get right to it. I want to start with some things you've heard us mention before, which is pretty common for these episodes. I'm going to start with two books that I mentioned on our most anticipated releases of November episode. First up is Love in the Age of Dragons by Fatima Henson. This is a young adult, like, 
fantasy slash dystopian featuring dragons. But not dragons as we know them, like kind of evil dragons. We then have an urban fantasy spinoff. This is Mortal Heart, Alice Worth World, book one by Lisa Edmonds. I am super excited about this. I know that Christine is, Natalia, Mika, Georgina now has inhaled the Alice Worth books. So this is always a good thing. Brooke mentioned The Prisoner by B.A. Paris, a standalone psychological thriller. And Sarah is looking forward to A Very Merry Bromance, Bromance Book Club, Book 5 by Lissa K. Adams. Stacy is also looking forward to this, Natalia, Kristen. So this is definitely another popular one. So those are some books you've heard us talk about previously. Let's move on now to some books that you haven't heard us mention before. First up is a young adult novel. This is Jasmine Zuma Needs a Win by Susan Azim Boyer. This is set in 1979, and it is about a teenage girl who is ready to kiss her small town life goodbye, head off to her dream school, NYU. But in order to do this, she needs something really stellar on her school transcript. And so she decides to say that she was class president. The problem is she's running for class president, but the election hasn't happened yet. This is Jasmine Zuma Needs a Win by Susan Azim Boyer. I want to talk about some romance here. We have Kiss Me, Catalina by Priscilla Oliveras. This is a contemporary romance between a rising star and a mariachi idol. I've heard so many good things about Oliveras. I think Stacy talked about her once on um, one of our romance episodes, and I have so many of her books on my TBR pile, I just haven't read them yet. This is Kiss Me, Catalina, and it's by Priscilla Oliveras. And sticking with the, the Kiss Me theme, or the Kiss theme, I guess, we have Kiss Her Once for Me. This is the latest by Alison Cochran. She wrote The Charm Offensive last year, and this is her new novel. It is a fake relationship with LBGT themes. We have a fake relationship between a couple and then the woman realizes that she's actually in love with her fake date's sister. So this is Kiss Her Once For Me by Alison Cochran. I want to move on now to some fantasy, like urban fantasy, paranormal romance, young adult fantasy, all kinds of like supernatural stuff. So we have Taken by Fate. This is Alpha Territories, book one by Shannon Mayer. And this actually came out on October 31st. So when you're hearing this, it is already out. And it is the story of a woman who's been auctioned off to the vampires. And she's sent into the Alpha Territory, which is 
like a far worse fate than she could have imagined. This is Taken by Fate, Alpha Territories, book one by Shannon Mayer. We then have The World We Make, The Great Cities trilogy, book two by N.K. Jemisin. The first book in this series came out in late 2019, I believe. So if you have read it, you're probably waiting for the second one, and it is here. Jemison has written some of like our kind of modern classics in speculative fiction. Um, the Inheritance Cycle is one um, of her series. She's just done so many great things. And I know that a lot of people, even if they're not big like speculative readers really enjoy her writing. So this is The World We Make, Great Cities, book two by N.K. Jemisin. We also have The Ones We Burn. This is by Rebecca Mix. It's about a dark witch who is married off as part of a peace treaty. And the consequences are unimaginable. This is dark fantasy. I can't tell if it's technically marketed for young adults, but it looks like even if it's not, it would have some pretty cool YA crossover appeal. So this is The Ones We Burn by Rebecca Mix. The Luminaries is out this week as well. This is The Luminaries book one by Susan Denard. And it's set in a small town, but this town isn't like other towns that you might think of. You can't find it on a map. Your cell phone won't work there, and the forest just outside the town might kill you. This is The Luminaries, The Luminaries, book one, by Susan Denard. Talking about modern classics in like sci-fi and fantasy, this one is Sea Sparrow. It is the fifth book in the Graceling Realm series by Kristen Kashur. And this one came out, uh, the first book in this series came out probably 15 years ago, maybe. And it was originally a trilogy, and then she wrote a fourth book a few years ago, and now she's back with a fifth one. So this is Sea Sparrow, Graceling Realm, book five by Kristen Kashur. We then have A Restless Truth. This is The Last Binding, book two by Freya Marsk. This is fantasy romance um, with a male-male romance running through here. I've heard some comparisons to um, Witchmarked, and I love Witchmarked, so this is definitely a series that I want to check out. It is A Restless Truth, Last Binding, book two by Freya Marsk. And we have Shadow Magic. This is Magic Happens, book one by Yasmin Gallinorn. It is coming out on Thursday, so November 3rd. This is the first book in a new paranormal women's fiction series. So we have a woman who is starting a new life. She used to work for something called the Crown Magica, which sounds like some kind of like supernatural uh, like law enforcement, perhaps. I'm not clear. 
and something goes terribly wrong. She has to relocate to a small town, and she realizes, of course, that small town life is not quite what she was expecting. If you know this author's work, you should know pretty much what you're getting into. It is lots of fun. Pretty much everything she's written I've loved. We have great world building, wonderful romance, and I am just super, super excited for this. It is Shadow Magic, Magic Happens, book one by Yasmin Gallinorn. And again, this is out on the 3rd of November. All right, let's move on now to some suspense. We have mysteries, thrillers, you know, all the, the nice twisty stuff. So The Zero Night, this is Jonathan Stride, book 11 by Brian Freeman. I have to say that I am not current with this series, even though I have enjoyed a lot of the books in it. For just for some reason, I have not caught up and I need to. And hopefully knowing that the 11th book is out will kind of give me the impetus I need. Um, these are police procedurals. The first book is immoral. And as I said, I, I do love them a lot. So this is The Zero Night, Jonathan Stride, book 11 by Brian Freeman. We also have She's Gone. This is the latest standalone thriller by David Bell. And it is about a missing girl, as so many books are. But when a girl disappears, who do you suspect? Now, there are a lot of answers to that question. But if you want to know who these people suspect, you'll have to pick it up. It is She's Gone by David Bell. We then have The Quarry Girls. This is by Jess Luray. And it is set in a small town where we have secrets, we have killers hiding in plain sight, and we have a girl who knows way too much. This is The Quarry Girls, and it's by Jess Luray. We also have The Daughter-in-Law by Shalini Boland. This is an author that I haven't read, although I know that Natalia and Christine both really enjoy her work. These are shorter than some of the psychological thrillers that I read, but um, some of them look like they're domestic thrillers. We focus a lot on marriage and family. Um, and this is an author that I do want to check out sometime soon. So this is The Daughter-in-Law by Shalini Boland. We also have The Cloisters. This is by Katie Hayes. And it's about the discovery of a tarot deck and the secrets that it lays bare within a close-knit group of researchers. This is The Cloisters, and it's by Katie Hayes. Wendy Webb has a new book out. This is The Stroke of Winter. And Webb writes these very atmospheric, kind of gothic, a little bit ghosty, but strangely not in a way that I hate. Um, most of her books are set near Lake Superior, and The Fate of Mercy Alban, which was the first Wendy Webb book that I've ever read, um, is one of the scariest things in terms of like creepy Halloween books. 
So this one is The Stroke of Winter. It's her newest, and again, it's by Wendy Webb. Sophie Hanna has a new book out. This is The Couple at the Table. And I can't tell if this is part of a police procedural series or if it's part of like just a loosely connected series of crime novels, but it's set at a couple's retreat. And apparently someone gets a note that says, you have to beware of the couple seated at the table nearest you. But when this note's recipient looks around, she sees that there are other couples and none of them are, are any closer or any further away than anyone else. So who sent this note? What are they talking about? And of course, why did they send it? This is The Couple at the Table by Sophie Hanna. And I want to also highlight a young adult thriller. This is Friends Like These by Jennifer Alber Alvarez. She wrote um, Lies Like Wildfire a few, let's see, I would say probably at the beginning of 2021. I'm sorry, either the beginning of 2022 or the end of 2021. Um, this one, though, looks like a little bit less um, supernatural than Lies Like Wildfire. And it is about the little lies that we sometimes tell ourselves and what happens when we let the truth in and maybe or maybe not depending on the circumstances it could set us free this is friends like these by jennifer lynn alvarez I'm rounding off today with a couple of historical novels. The first one is a dual timeline. It is The Stolen Book of Evelyn Aubrey by Serena Burdick. It is centered around a question. What if you could rewrite your ending? Something that you always thought you knew. What if you could change it? This is a dual timeline novel. Serena Burdick has written a couple of really really stellar things. Um, Find Me in Havana, she wrote in 2020. And I just, I really like her voice. I like her transitions between the past and the present. So this is definitely one that I'll be picking up. This is The Stolen Book of Evelyn Aubrey by Serena Burdick. And last up today, we have Gilded Mountain. This is by Kate Manning. It's set in Colorado in the early 1900s. And this is the story of a woman who stands up against injustice. So it kind of looks like, you know, Aaron Brockovich perhaps, but set in 1900s Colorado. This is Gilded Mountain by Kate Manning. And that, my friends, is all I have for you this week. If Halloween is a thing you celebrate, I hope you had a fun and safe time doing spooky things. I, of course, hope you got lots of great candy or that your kids got lots of great candy for you, whichever is most applicable to your situation. Or maybe you just bought lots of great candy, but instead of giving it out, decided to eat it. That is what I would do. Anyway. I hope all of you are staying safe and well, and along with eating lots of great candy. 
I certainly hope you are reading lots of great books. If you would like to leave us a rating or a review, you can do that on Apple Podcasts or any other platform that you use to access the show. Not only does it tell us what you think, but it also helps other people find us when they're looking for book-related podcasts. Um, It kind of advances us in the Google algorithm. So I will be back next Tuesday morning with an author interview and, of course, the guide to new releases. And some number of us will be back on Friday with more bookish greatness. Take care, everybody.